I'm Tony Lockwood, founder of Thompson Wright Partners, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the latest episode of Inside Track, where I discuss business transformation journeys with leading figures in industry. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Steve Baker. I've known Steve for a couple of years, and every time we meet up, I feel energized and believe that anything is possible. Although Steve operates in the transformation space, he is unlike all of the other people that we've had on the podcast in that the transformation that he delivers is on individuals and communities rather than organizations. However, as I've said so many times to him before, I absolutely believe 100% that his approach, which has been successful in many different arenas, is absolutely transferable to corporate life. Unfortunately, there's a little bit of interference on the line in places, so hopefully this will not affect your enjoyment of the show. With that, I'm delighted to introduce you to Steve Baker. Welcome to uh, the uh, Inside Track podcast. Great to have you on board. Uh, Thank you very Steve much. Baker, OBE. That's, uh, since, since we uh, set up the date for recording the episode and the actual recording, you, you've obviously been awarded the OBE, so many congratulations on that. How did Cheers, that make Tony. you feel? Um, incredibly excited, and then I realised I was going to be out of pocket because I've got two very excited little girls who want to know whether they can have new dresses for the visit to the palace. <laughs> it's going to cost me a fortune, but yeah, it was it was incredible. And do you have a date as yet for the for, for for going down, or is it COVID dependent at the moment? It's all COVID dependent. Ordinarily, you go down within six months of being given the honour, but um, that's just going to depend on restrictions. Yeah. So we'll see. Good. So, uh, yeah, well, make sure that you get them the two nice dresses. I, I certainly will. My five-year-old asked if she can wear nail varnish as well, so that's <laughs> another problem I've got to, I've got to tackle. <laughs> Growing up far too quickly. Absolutely. So, so most of the people that we have on these uh, podcasts uh, have had significant experience in delivering organisational change and transformation. You're a little different, um, but as we've discussed many times before, I, I think what you do is so transferable into the corporate world. So I'm keen to, I was keen to get you on to share your experience. So uh, do you want to just give us a brief summary of your career to date? And that, that'll give us the context of the conversation. Probably take up the entire podcast. Um, so going back, going back over 20, 25 years, I was originally a war crimes investigator for the United Nations. So I worked as a forensic anthropologist exhuming war graves and performing autopsies to investigate the genocide in Bosnia. Fast forward a little bit, um, came back into the UK. Um, I spent time traveling all around the world, but when I was UK based, I worked in recruitment and did fairly well there. But then I decided I wanted to make a difference. So I entered the world of education. Within a couple of years, I moved into headship and I've led three different schools to outstanding judgments. As a head teacher, um, I was an Ofsted inspector as well. I now sit on various boards and I, I do research and, and I put that into practice looking at neuroscience and psychology. Um, we focus very much on motivation and we remove non-confrontational approaches to how we modify behaviour because the schools I lead all take the most challenging kids. So they are all excluded from mainstream provision through either pupil referral, referral units or the two schools I now have or special schools for children with social, emotional, and mental health difficulties. And then um, the last 18 months or so, I am now seconded 50% um, of my time away from the two schools I run into a position with a collective impact initiative charity called Right to Succeed, who look at place-based change 
on a huge scale. So we're looking at change right across an entire community now over the next 20 to 25 years, which is being funded by some key philanthropists, including a billionaire. So that's it in a nutshell. That's in a nutshell. And you've, you've very quickly gone over that experience there, haven't you? And, uh, but I was particularly interested to really understand what you, how you define transformation in your world and, and because you, you do transform lives in, in many different ways. Uh, how would you define transformation? The way that we look at transformation, if a, if you use a school example, we look at trying to change children's behaviour. So we have children who can be potentially very violent and aggressive, who have a range of additional needs, including things like attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, philological spectrum disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, children on, on the autism spectrum disorder. And what we look to do is transform their behaviour. So we don't do that. In, in the short term, we don't use punishment. So we've moved away from punitive measures. And we've moved away from sanctions. So a dictionary definition of a sanction is um, the implied threat of a punishment. And we've moved away from that. So we look at trying to modify behavior and transform behavior over the long term through using rewards-based systems and effective intrinsic and extrinsic motivators. Um, so that's on a on an individual basis in terms of transformation in terms of broader transformation it's about making things better uh, i would say so looking at it from a school perspective uh, the schools that i've led um i've moved to outstanding which is the highest judgment that Ofsted can give us um, and that's despite my schools being funded in the bottom 10 percent we performing the top 10% nationally, funded in the bottom 10%. My secondary school is less than half the minimum recommended size for a special school. And we've not had any additional funding to change our staffing. I've just tried to um, optimise what we have and get people to work together really effectively. And we've transformed the culture within the school to move them. I've, I work in the prison estate as well. I've worked with prison governors across the country, helping them. Um, undertake transformational change in, in the justice system. And now in terms of the transformational change, we're looking at working right across the North Birkenhead area, which is being recognised as one of the top five most socioeconomically deprived areas in the country. If you look at the indices of deprivation um, spanning back to when they started in 2002, there are only five neighbourhoods in the country that rank um, have ranked in the top 100 most deprived and North Birkenhead's one of them consistently in there. Yeah. So one of the top five most deprived. And what we're looking to do in terms of transformational changes is change the children's life chances over a series of generations. So a 20 year project to close attainment gaps, to improve um, educational attainment, educational progress, improve literacy, literacy skills, tackle antisocial behavior across the piece. And so transform an entire community using a place-based change model. Right, interesting. And going back to the start of that, you're talking about the um, behavioural change uh, element and, and <clears throat> how you have, have, have moved away from a discipline to an incentive type of, of, of approach. Um, and I think that is absolutely transferable into the corporate world. Um, can you just go a little bit deeper on that in, in, in terms of how, you, how you've done that and, and what the reaction has been and, and how people have adapted, both your staff 
and 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 the children themselves. Yeah, so I looked at different styles of leadership, and um, you know, there's there, there's a psychologist called McGregor, and he said there are two styles: there's an X or a Y style. So an X style is very much based around the people who work for you need to be directed; they need to be given um, direct commands; they need to be, in effect, punished. Although they don't want to be there, they don't want to be doing the job. You've got to constantly micromanage them. And then the Y style of leadership he postulated was all around taking people on a journey, giving them a vision, um, using extrinsic motivators that, that will ultimately impact on them, so they are intrinsically motivated to do well. So, in 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 terms of how we've gone about the change, um, I mean, I, I don't want to go too scientific on you, but my my background science, I've got a couple of master's degrees, and one of them's um, around educational leadership, and we do a lot of research. So I sit on the board of a of a neuroscience think tank called Learners, and we look at how we can take neuroscientific research and put it into education, put it into practice. So the model we use is it's called Hebbian theory, and it's all about how your brain um, is transformed and how you can create new neuronal architecture through the use of effective rewards. So if I'm going to put it really bluntly, if if you see positive behavior and you reward it, that behavior is more likely to be repeated. And then you strengthen that neural pathway. And then if you reward it again, you strengthen it further. And ultimately, it just becomes um, either an intrinsic motivator or it becomes a habit. Yeah. And people are work much more effectively to the rewards. Now, I said a little bit earlier um, that my schools are funded in the bottom 10% in the country. When I say rewards, it doesn't mean something huge like taking them off on a, on a holiday to Disney World. It just means catching them doing something right yeah. and um, rewarding them with some praise it can be a well done it could be written praise pardon it's, it's like ha uh, acknowledging the fact that they've done something absolutely yeah. absolutely and then you know and if and if someone is is doing something good and you praise them for it because we are social creatures i've just had a book published all about this we are social creatures if you acknowledge and praise someone for doing something the people around them are going to want to do it as well because yeah. they see someone else getting praise and they want that praise yeah. and it starts to create a snowball effect so how does that sit with the pain gain uh, approach you know where people either are motivated to move away from pain or motivated to move towards gain and 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 there is this sort of theory isn't there that you're more motivated to move away from pain than you are to move towards gain there are a couple of different things you know if if someone if someone feels that they're unable to move away from pain um it's not effective anymore. So you get this state of learned helplessness, which is, you know, there's a psychologist called um, called Seligman, who's the founder of positive psychology, and he talks a lot about learned helplessness. So you can't actually move away from the from the pain. But but what we're seeing actually is is the implied threat of a punishment isn't effective. That's why our prisons are full. So punishment doesn't work. I've not gone out this morning and I've not robbed a bank because I think oh, I'm going to get punished for it. It's because I, I know it's deep down it's wrong. It's not a, the right thing to rob a bank. Um, whereas if you want someone to consistently repeat positive behaviours, you're much more likely to get that if you reward them effectively. So punishment or the threat of punishment, it may work for people, but there are a significant minority of people which are 
you know, and those sorts of people actually happen to form the majority of the students in my schools, but a significant minority of the gen general population, they are not, um, they are not affected by the threat of punishment, but mm -hmm. everyone, everyone is affected by rewards. So you can, you're more likely to get people to do the right thing by rewarding them. So we look at, at going back to an individual basis of behavioral change, we look at trying to change the individual over time i'm not saying a reward will make someone choose the right behavior after a week or after a month but over time and a repetition of those positive behaviors you're more likely to get a long-term change and that's all based based on this um theory of neuroscience called hebbian theory if you translate that into the corporate world where where where, where people are as you're driving through transformation, you, you know, you, you know the, the, we use the terminology just like you do. You need to take people on that journey, utilizing positive reinforcements and, and, and positive behaviors and, and acknowledging when people have done good is definitely a way of helping people transition. One of the challenges, having said that, sometimes is just taking all the core stakeholders on, on, on that journey as well. In, in terms of your experience of your sort of core stakeholders within the education and or in the in the prison environment, how have you taken them on that journey and how, how have you found that they've reacted and, and adapted to, to, to your approach? It's an interesting one. Um, so about five years ago, I was asked to take over a school that was um, under threat of closure and there was a six-month police investigation. And so it was probably in as bad a place as you could imagine um, as far as a, an education establishment is concerned. So in order to turn it around, which we did, within two years we had an Ofsted inspection and we moved from closure to outstanding in all areas. We didn't have a new set of staff. It was the same group of people. And there's a couple of, of theories. Now, um, obviously, in the corporate world, you use a lot of different theories of change. And so the, the, the theories of change that I used in particular in my schools and I've supported prison governors to use, one which you'll know of, which is Cotter and his eight-step cycle. So, um, and the second one was um, Appreciative Inquiry by Cooper Ryder. Right. So Cotter, the first three stages of Cotter's eight-step cycle to cultural change, the first one is is create a sense of urgency. So that wasn't a problem because, um, you know, the school was under threat of closure. And then the second one was about create, creating a team of people who you felt would be able to drive that change forward. Yeah. So when I first arrived at the primary school, um, one member of staff took me to one side and told me to F off. So what do you know about primary? And I said, I don't. I said, but I know about leadership. And, you know, if you trust me, I'll support you. I'm, I'm not going to vilify you. I'm not going to accuse you of anything. I'll work with you and we will make this better. So I looked at Cotter's cycle. I got the leadership team on board. The head had been removed. The deputy head had been removed. The business leader left. The board of governors all were removed. And several of the senior staff had left within the previous six months. So I had a very new senior leadership team. I took in one other pair or two other people with me. And we created a team. We had that sense of agency. And then what I did is I engaged all the stakeholders. So all of the staff, any of the parents who were taught to us, the new board of governors, the pupils, and we started to create a vision on what we were trying to achieve. So that was going on on one path. Running parallel to that, I used the appreciative inquiry by Cooper Ryder. So if you go into an institution and you look to 
create change the first thing most people do is look at what's not working but i didn't want to do that because you know the staff in the school had already been vilified they were under a lot of pressure so i went in and i said listen what's working so i did lots of different questionnaires and 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 stakeholder meetings and met people individually in small groups and said tell me what works really well so we can do more of that then we created a system where i could have short-term wins medium-term wins and long-term wins because initially I was only seconded into the school for nine months. Um, that's five years ago now. Um, and so what I could do is, is, is I asked people, if you were in charge, what would you do? And some of it was nonsensical. Well, some of it was absolutely golden. Yeah. So I took those little golden nuggets and some of them were dead easy to put in place. So within the first month of all those meetings taking place, I just did a very basic, you said, we did exercise. And I said, you said this, we did this. And they could start to see tangible change themselves. And within a month, you could feel the, the, the tide starting to turn and people were on board, started to believe what we did. Then we... After about six weeks, we created a new vision, an entire new vision and, and, and um, set of core principles for the school. And every key decision we made, we cross-referenced with that vision and set of principles. You know, do we want to do this? Well, let me just check on, on the vision. Do we want to? And so everyone knew what we were trying to achieve. The first three months were hellish. Um, don't believe everything people tell you about school holidays they don't really exist um, and after about six months we, we could really see the change 12 months later I felt that we were moving into a really good place and within two years we were outstanding in all areas and we right. were used by the Department for Education as an exemplar in terms of of best practice and how we treat our staff and promote mental health and well-being Right. And, and I suspect then in those first three months, as you say, we were really hellish. Part of that would have been, um, you know, that, that, that team would have been beaten up so many times previously about yeah. getting things wrong. They had to, yeah. they were probably even thinking you were just trying to trick them by going in and saying what you were doing well or what was going yeah. well. Um, so you had, to, you had to turn that around and build the trust up almost to. Absolutely. I think, and, and the way that we did it, because what we'd done so effectively in my previous schools, I introduced the coaching culture. But interestingly, coaching moved from the corporate world into the education world around 2000. And I've done some research into it, but I didn't use coaching to inform pedagogy or how to teach. So we didn't look at it for, for a work-based system. What I did is I introduced coaching for a couple of reasons. The first being to create really, really effective lines of communication between the team. The second, I introduced a non-hierarchical system. So I was being coached by an unqualified teacher and my deputy was being coached by a teaching assistant. So we said, listen, it's a flat hierarchy, flattened hierarchy. There are lines of accountability and responsibility, but ultimately we all have equal voice in this and we can all hold each other to account. So people started to believe in that. And the coaching also allowed us to focus on resilience. And we do a lot of work around emotional resilience and well-being because, you know, my wife says happy wife, happy life. I say happy staff, happy kids, better outcomes. It's it's not hard. Um, yeah, so that that's the, we work it. Yeah, we, we spend most of our waking lives in work, so we might as well enjoy it while we're there. But I think that what you're just saying is really interesting, though, that you were saying that you 
introduce the coaching culture, but in a completely different way than most organisations will ever do it. And you turned it on its head to say, actually, we're just, we're going to be coaching each other. We're having those accountability sessions between each other, irrespective of the hierarchy within the organisation. So did, did you did you give them um, some some sort of coaching skills training beforehand, or was it some you know how how did you implement that? Because that would that would have I would have think, would have thought would be quite challenging for some people to to take on initially. You know, a relatively maybe a relatively junior member coaching you, for instance. Yeah, I'm quite lucky because in addition to the to the headship roles I've got, I do a lot of consultancy work. So I do a lot of public speaking. So I go in and I train other school leaders on 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 cultural change, on motivation, on how to change, modify behaviours. And one of the things that I train people on is coaching. So um, I've done a big piece of research into coaching. I've done a master's in it, and I didn't want people to get sick of me, but just to go back a bit, I have some credibility in my school. So when I first arrived, when I first started teaching, I arrived in the school where um, I initially took on my headship. There was a sweepstake on how long I'd last because, right. it, you know, it, it is a challenging environment when, when children and young adults are very violent and aggressive and they thought I wouldn't last very long. And ironically, I went back as the head. So they'd seen me move right through the system. But... Um, I, I wanted a, um, an external source to come in and do the coaching training initially, so it wasn't just all about me talking to them, but because I had trained up other schools, I could just constantly chip away and um, and give them more professional development opportunities and remind them of key coaching um, skills. So we used the GROW model, just kept it nice and simple. And one of the things that we made sure that we did is get the contracting right at the beginning so people knew that it would be confidential. And that's one of the reasons why we chose not to look at informing our practice or pedagogy. We looked at coaching as a tool to really um, give us a solution focus, but for ourselves, so we could look at um, what was impacting us because mental health doesn't stop at the workplace and and then and at home, it all blends into one so I said to people I don't care what you talk about those coaching conversations are are absolutely confidential just come with a problem and talk it through with someone in absolute confidence and so we 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 paid a sharp focus on developing emotional resilience and emotional intelligence looking at the work of Goldman and his emotional intelligence um his work you know what we do can be incredibly um, challenging. So we work with some of the most disadvantaged young people in the most disadvantaged areas in the UK. And people talk about empathy, but empathy in our line of work can be aversive. You can start taking on all those emotions and it can impact your own well-being. So we looked at trying to change that empathy into compassion, which is a more of a... Um, a, a friend of mine used to describe it as loving action. You you see injustice and you want to tackle it. And you know, a lot of my willingness to tackle injustice goes all the way back to the very beginning and my war crimes work. Yeah, yeah. Now I was going to come back to that actually because that must that I know when we've had conversations in the past that's that's informed a, a massive amount of what you've gone on to do, hasn't it? You know that I remember you saying that on on, on, on that, the first time we met that. What you what you came away from 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 Bosnia 
and, and really wanted to understand how people could have gone and done the types of things that yeah. you can't even, you know, if you've not been there, you can't even imagine the sort of stuff that you, you've seen. Um, but you, you wanted to understand how they could have got to that stage to do and take the actions that they took. There's Absolutely. And that's what drove me to go into education because early intervention is more effective than remedial action and education and remembrance are the only way that we can tackle these sorts of issues. And the thing that gets me is if you look at any any genocide in history, uh, you look at the Holocaust, you look at the Bosnian genocide, the genocide over in Rwanda, the stock tape when you're sitting at home and you're watching this on the news is, oh, aren't they evil? And people fall into the trap of thinking that only evil people can perpetrate really horrific acts, but it's not true. Um, ordinary people were involved in the genocide. And, and so that's what led me to try and um, do more work to tackle hatred and work with the most challenging and disadvantaged kids back in the UK. Because um, who was it who said it was a parliamentarian? I forgot who it was. Who, who it was who said um, all that's necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing yeah. and uh, and so I now sit on the board of a charity called Remembrance Revenita and we do a lot of work I speak at Holocaust Memorial Day events about the Bosnian genocide I speak in schools I speak in prisoners about the ultimate consequences of of hatred if we leave it to go unfettered and unchecked and and it can lead into genocide now there's been a big piece of research looking at the stages of genocide one to ten but the tenth stage of genocide actually being denial which you're seeing a lot now but you you consider those ten stages you could argue quite easily that we're probably on stage four five or six in the western world at the moment in the state and some of the some of the prevalence of the hate speech right-wing hate speech in particular and in the uk as well and some of the things that are going on so that drove me to want to make a difference and again um initially when i was a science teacher I'd, I'd go and talk about the forensics behind the genocide but now i talk about the psychology of it and what led up to the bosnian genocide and actually what we can do to try and stop it from happening again yeah um, and what i would you what, what what are the sort of top two or three things that you think we should be doing now then given the you if you if you think that we're at sort of five or six on that sort of one to ten scale, um, you know, I, I I was having a chat with 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 a friend of ours over the weekend, and um, we're talking about some of the the hate that comes across in social media, um, yeah. that that uh, and Twitter in particular, you probably never say to the person face to face, but because they are hidden behind a a username, then you seem to be quite happy to say something. And I'm, I'm not for one minute saying that's anywhere near that, that sort of, but it, it's just indicative of this sort of world that we're living in at the moment. Absolutely. Um, so remembering Srebrenica, this year is the 25th anniversary of the genocide. I was due to be back in, in Sarajevo. I was going to lead a delegation um, to educate the delegates about the genocide and what happened and actually take them to Potichar into Srebrenica where it took place. And the charity this year, their theme is called Every Action Matters. And it, that's that's what we can do. Take a, take an action, no matter how small, because you're right. What what we need to do is stand up and speak out. And and you see it, you've mentioned it on social media in particular, right wing hate speech is is prevalent. You look at the um 
the massacres and the killings at the mosques in Christchurch. And as 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 the perpetrator was driving to the mosques, he was listening to um, Sir Propaganda songs on the radio. And what we need to do is we need to learn from what's happened and we need to remember what's happened and make sure that we don't make the same mistakes again. But unfortunately, you know, never again seems to be turning into yet again. So I think in terms of actions, what we need to do is every time that we hear, hear that sort of speech mentioned and, and we see it on social media, we need to stand up and, and speak out and protect the people who are being victimised. Yeah, but that's easier said than done, isn't it? Because, you know, especially with on social media, I know we're going down a massive different uh, tangent here, but on social media in particular, um, if you if you if you stand up and and call out these people, you, 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 it's not uncommon for you to be absolutely battered by yeah, yeah. by, by the sympathisers coming after you type of stuff, and 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 that yeah. can have a big impact on individuals as well. Absolutely, um, you know it, it's amazing, as you say, it's amazing social media. The things that you'd say on that that you, you know fifty years ago you never dared, or twenty years ago, ten years ago you never dared to say to someone in the pub. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's frightening what people get away with now. But there are other ways to try and tackle it by reporting it and whatnot. I, uh, I wouldn't suggest that you try and take it head on, but. It, you know, so, sometimes maybe that is the right thing to do because we are letting we're letting too much, too many people get away with too much, and and it's frightening the direction of travel that we're going in. Yeah, it, it, it's there are worrying times ahead. No, absolutely. So, so bringing it back into sort of the transformation space in your school now, where where something happens that is not acceptable. Or, or, or in prison when you're working with a prison population, something happens that's not acceptable. What what are the stages that you would typically go through to to try to uh, turn that that sort of behaviour around? I'm just I'm just trying to think, trying to um, uh, align it to maybe some lessons that we can take into the corporate world. Yeah. So. People often think that when I talk about removing sanctions, that we just don't have any any consequences at all. That that's absolutely not true. You know, in in the corporate world, out in 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 the public world, every action that you take there's going to be an ultimate consequence to that action. So um, we do have consequences for the actions. Um, what we try and do is we try and get people to understand their behaviours and what are driving them. So, for example. Um, with with children young people if someone's in crisis and they are they are agitated and they are trashing a classroom and throwing things around what you don't want to do is try and sit them down over the cup of tea and have a chat about it at the time because obviously they're in crisis and it takes a long time to de-escalate those sorts of behaviors but once someone is thinking rationally again that's when you need to be speaking to them to understand what is making them um behave in that way so we try and come at it from a place of understanding before we begin any conversation we don't always need to win that conversation it's not a battleground so it's the same i imagine in the corporate world if you go in when i was an offset inspector if i went in and inspected a lesson i was i was observing it and i i and i wanted to to see whether that person was an effective teacher they've changed the way they do lesson observations now what we didn't start with afterwards when we were given feedback is tell me how you think that went because you could end up in a nightmare scenario they think it was absolutely amazing and actually it was a car crash lesson yeah. so what we do is we just try and get people to 
talk to us about what they were thinking at the time when those behaviors were taking place and then we try and get them to understand why they're just not acceptable behaviors and what the consequences will be in the outside world um is that about the, identifying the triggers the trigger events that's causing them to, to 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 go down the particular route absolutely so if you look at um if you look at someone with incredibly challenging behavior something is driving that we see those behaviors as a form of communication and and what i'm not saying is that we we accept those behaviors and we um approve of them we may not approve of them but we want to know what's driving them but ultimately let's say my primary school as an example i can manage the behavior in a class of primary age children seven eight year olds i'm a fairly big scouser i could walk in and scream at them and shout at them is that acceptable no i could make them do what i want because i'm a pretty scary bloke if i wanted to be is that right no what i want to do is get them to understand those behaviors and change them over the long term and if someone is misbehaving i want to find out why what's driving that you know if we just take a classic example on the news today looking at child poverty and hunger you know over 50 percent of the kids in in the wards that we take them from um are living in child poverty and some of them are very very hungry now if you translate if you transpose that onto maslow's hierarchy and look at self-actualization at the top and at the very bottom is having your basic needs met if that child's hungry if i'm hungry if I'm tired, like I was yesterday, because I was woken up at 6.15, if I'm hungry and I'm tired, I'm not acting rationally, I'm not behaving well. So what we try and do is make sure that we can get some of those um, basic elements in place first. So we'll feed the kids when they come into work, into school in the morning. We'll talk to them, we'll find out what sort of place they're in. Um, and I think we, we, we try and base it, I'm going to paraphrase this, and it's going to be slightly wrong, but Mandela said no one's born evil, and if you can learn to hate, you can be taught to love, and that's what we're trying to do with these kids. Yeah. We understand some of them have got, um, you know, really challenging home lives, and um, some of them have had really challenging upbringings, but we're not judging them. Every day is a fresh start. We will try and work with them again, and over time, by rewarding the positive behaviours that we want to see, we'll get them to repeat them, and um, eventually they'll repeat them consistently and it'll become a habit and they'll make better choices and it does work over the long term yeah it, it reminds me actually um a couple of weeks ago we had um mike Gcock, who i've known for 20 30 years or so worked with him for many years and uh, one of the things one of one of his key phrases is no one cares about what you know until they know that you care and there's an element of yeah. that in there it's it's really about getting into the world understanding what their situation is and yeah. then helping guiding them and helping them along the path that you want to take but until you're really in their space and understand what where, where they are in their mind that you can't you can't you can't start to make that personal transformation and it's exactly the same in, in the corporate world yeah i was going to say in in the corporate world i imagine it would be and you know having worked in in different sectors previously including recruitment and i did well when i was working in that and um, everything comes down to one key skill that's communication effective communication and as well as being able to communicate effectively with the kids i need to communicate effectively with the staff or the stakeholders parents other agencies it all comes down to talking to people openly honestly 
understanding them and what place they're coming from but also actively listening to them because i know it's a habit that a lot of people get into and they don't really listen to what you're saying they're just waiting for you to stop talking so they can take their turn um so we we also use the coaching skills once we've embedded it for improving our 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 skill set as a staff and for supporting each other in terms of emotional resilience, we started using it with the children and it developed organically from there. So we just asked them lots of really effective opening open questions and then they give us lots and lots of information. So everything boils down to effective lines of communication and support. Obviously, you've seen that uh, a big impact upon the behaviours of the children um, in, in the schools that you're working with. But in terms of how they develop and how they go forward, that's a real skill set that you're giving them that will, will, will make a difference for the rest of their life. Do, is, do, they, do you get a feel that they, they're understanding that and they're getting that and, and actually in, uh, incorporating and integrating that into the way that they sort of move forward in their life? Or is it, are they a bit too young? I'm not too sure what the ages are. Yeah, so... I originally had a secondary school, so 11 to 16 boys only, and then the primary school I took over um, was boys and girls, and they come in really age 6 through to 11. And it depends on how long they're with you because it's quite a transient population sometimes. So if they're excluded from mainstream school, then they end up in one of my schools. We mightn't get them to year 10 or even the back end of year 11, so we, we aren't able to have a, you know, a lot of impact with them. But what they always understand um, is that we'll talk to them. So no matter what, what what age they come into us, we develop relationships. Now, you know, my staff are aware we develop really effective relationships relationships with the kids, but the professional relationships, we are not their friends, but we are friendly. And it's the same in the corporate world. You know, you might not, not want to be mates with the team that you're working with, but you want to be friendly to them. And you're more likely to, to develop a sense of team when we were doing that caught a cycle not the primary school my, my secondary school that i've been at for quite some time is we didn't really have the sense of agency but in terms of timings but we had a sense of agency because we we were so badly funded we could have been heading towards a deficit budget so what what the coaching system and creating these really strong links within the team and a flattened hierarchy allowed us to do is create a if you, if you forgive the football analogy create a, a an old crazy gang wimbledon football club yeah. style and um, style of of thinking so no one likes us everyone hates us we don't care we're yeah. going to do the right thing for these kids and we're going to do it well and so what everyone who's ever visited my schools has said is they can't believe um how happy everyone seems and how glad they are to be at work in such a challenging environment. And they can't believe how nicely they're welcomed and and how calm it is. And it's all because we have these really effective relationships with each other, with the staff, with parents, with everyone who comes into the building. Um, a friend of mine who's a, a lead psychologist at Goldsmiths calls it the cup of tea test. So, you know, you're always judging everyone whenever you first meet them. And she judges every school she goes to by whether she's offered a cup of tea and how she's welcomed. Yeah. And so I've even introduced that into my recruitment strategy. So when I'm looking for new staff, which isn't very often, um, I I um, I have certain elements to that recruitment, including shortlisting, longlisting, the ultimate interview, a lesson observation. But I'll also have several windows of opportunity 
So one, the one of the first windows is when they arrive in the school, I'll ask the office staff and I will wait it in terms of, of making it quantifiable. I will ask them how they felt that the individual spoke to them because a lot of people often look down on, on the office yeah, staff yeah. or those yeah. who they deem to be the bottom of the hierarchy. And then what I also did um, in my primary school a few years ago, I took one of the teaching assistants and she sat with the candidates during their break and I asked her to feedback on what newspapers they chose to read, what they talked <laughs> about, whether they were welcoming, you know, just so we got to find out a little bit more about how they ticked, what yeah. made them tick. Because I want to I want to recruit on a values-based system. So as far as teaching goes, if I I can teach anyone to teach, what I can't really effectively teach is people to understand, empathize, and be compassionate towards disadvantaged kids and have that resilience. I can support it, but it's more difficult if they're coming from a, a, a starting place that's a lot further back. No, absolutely. And again, it's it's very similar in the corporate world around um, recruiting for on against uh, on attitude because on the skills yeah. of the job, you can train them, you can give them that support. Yeah. But it's very difficult to change an attitude if they've got if they're coming in with that bad attitude. Transformation, we, we we say all the time, transformation in any environment is really is is typically very stressful for people because people don't like to go through change, and and you've seen things that many of us can't even imagine. Um, so uh, you know, and, and, and really really stressful situations. But how how do you what do you do to manage your stress? Yeah, yeah, lessons from the front line. Um, so to manage my stress, a lot of it's um, around coaching and resilience. So I talk to other people and I have a few good relationships with, with key people who understand what I'm talking about, who aren't linked into work. So I, I've got um, a good friend who is an executive head teacher down south and I'll, I'll speak to them. So I have networks and I also look after after my physical health. I'm, 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 I don't know if I told you about the challenge that I'm doing at the moment. Yes. I'm running from Lon London to Sarajevo. So it's a thousand and seven miles. And I'm, I'm doing that to raise awareness of the Bosnian genocide. I've got about, well, I've got about five days left, actually. I should hit, um, I should hit Sarajevo on Saturday, the 31st of October. Brilliant. And how many, what, what's that? Every, every day you're doing, what is it, 10 miles is it, or something like that? Um, I, I've, I think I've done about 240, two, no, 255 days running every day. I've averaged a park run a day. So I'm averaging about six kilometres a day, actually, okay. over the last 255 days. Great. Brilliant. And is that, are you doing, are you raising money for that? Is that something that we can all contribute to or... It's very, yeah, I wasn't trying to plug it, but yeah, I, I am. I'm trying to raise money to help tackle hatred for um, for Remembrance Rebenica. So, uh, oh, well, well, send us the link and I'll put the link in the in the show notes. So if anybody it wants is, to Tony. do that, that'd be great. That's really kind. Thank you so much. So um, one final question. Uh, it's the same question that I ask everybody on, on, on the podcast is if you if you have to boil your all your experience down into one core takeaway, what would that be? Don't give up. Don't give up and don't doubt that you can make a difference. So there's a social anthropologist called Margaret Mead who said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever can or ever has. And so as a, as a working class lad from Liverpool, um, I've never given up and I've always woken up every day no matter what negative thoughts intrude into my head I always just think no I'm going to make a difference today and so far I have
that's great. That, but you can't really end on a on a on a more positive note than that. So uh, thanks a lot. That's that's really great. Thanks a lot, Steve. Cheers, Tony. You're very welcome. Okay. Once we finished the podcast, Steve and I carried on our discussion, and his response to a point that I raised about his approach on coaching was so insightful. I was keen to share it with you. So here it is. Congratulations. I, I have not come across an organisation that does that coaching thing like you've done, ever. And you know what? So I'm, I'm just, I'm a, I'm a bit of a geek. I'm addicted to learning. So I've got five post-grad qualifications. I've got two master's degrees. I started a doctorate, but didn't have time to finish it because of all the charity work I do. But the, the master's I was doing was in coaching, coaching as an educational leadership tool. And did a big piece of research and just stopped and thought there's never been there's never been um, a study that looks at staff happiness pupil happiness or staff well-being pupil well-being and outcomes but there is a bi-directional influence that also impacts on behavior and i just thought you know what life's a bit shit sometimes mm. life's tough where can be tough so you know talking about transformational change on top of that you've got stakeholders who will assault you so you don't know what you're going to get every day. So I'm just going to I'm just going to focus on supporting staff, supporting their emotional resilience. And one of the other things that we did, which has been incredibly useful, I do a lot of work around positive psychology. Is every day at the end of the day when we have a staff meeting, we um, we before we talk about what what happened, what worked well, and what we need to work on to improve you've got to turn to the person sitting next year and tell them three things that went positively in the last 24 hours and most importantly the reason why one of them happened so you've got a sense of agency so you can do it again so if something made you happy why not do it again and every time I go and do um, public talks and motivational speaking and all this sort of thing that bit just changes the room everyone lights up i can talk about the psychology behind it by lubomirsky and all that sort of stuff but i did this um in a in a, um, a public forum for the schools and academies show last year there's 150 speakers in the nec and there's me and i just thought no one's going to turn up it was standing room only turns out they said i was the most popular speaker over two days out of 150 and they turned it into a podcast than their most downloaded podcast. Excellent. It's just me with all these like, little nuggets of mad positivity. But it oh, you, you need to share that podcast then. The, the, the address of that I podcast. Tony, I don't even know where it is. And, <laughs> and, and the worst the worst thing is because I do suffer from imposter syndrome as a working class scouser, I won't ever um I won't ever listen to myself. Right. So I've never read the uh, you know five star review my book. I won't read it. I just I, I just think someone's going to find me out. Nah. I don't actually belong here. So. But I think everyone's got that imposter syndrome, haven't they? Yeah. Most people have. So I can understand it, but I don't think you've got anything to worry about. Cheers, Tony. <laughs> Steve, once again, thank you. I'm sure that you'll agree with my premise that the way that Steve goes about transforming the lives of children in his schools inmates in the prison that he supports and the communities that he is working within can and should be deployed within organisations. Go try out his style of coaching and see how people respond. Give his idea of starting a meeting asking people to share what's been the best aspect of the last 24 hours and the reasons why engage the difference. Please do share your experiences. You can connect direct with Steve within the Transformation Leaders Hub. 
along with many other project program and change management professionals. The community is going from strength to strength. If you haven't checked it out already, please do so and I look forward to seeing you in the clubhouse real soon.